from the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Geek at Arms podcast. I'm James, sitting in with you, along with my good friend, Brian, who is, for the first time, sitting in studio with me. Hello, everybody. And he's out visiting me and my family from California, and I get to hang out with him for a while. So that's a rare treat that I'm happy for. And actually having someone in studio with me and not just talking to a microphone or a computer screen <laughs> as you and, and Mike are in literally the, the two most separate areas of the United States I could get to, excluding Hawaii and Alaska. But it's uh, just going to be me and you today. Our good man Mike's not with us recording this episode because he had a death in the family. And so what we want to do is just encourage all of y'all listening to our podcast, just take a moment and say a prayer for him and his family. They're going through a hard time right now. I just pray that the Lord be with them, bring him some peace, some comfort, and just let them know that they are loved. So pray for him. And next episode, he'll be back with us. So my friend, glad to have you with me. Glad to be here. So let's just jump right in. What have you been geeking out to recently? Well, uh... I unwisely spent most of my overtime pay this year on an Oculus Rift. Oh, nice. Uh, for anybody who's had their head under a rock and doesn't know what those words mean, it's a virtual reality head-mounted visor. Put you inside the game, and I got the room scale sensor so I can stand up and swing swords or shoot guns or whatever. Now, a few months ago, I was at a GameStop, and one of the only times you'll ever catch me inside of a GameStop, <laughs> and they had a display setup or like an interactive display of the new Sony PlayStation's version of that. Mm-hmm. They've got a name for it. I don't know what it is, but, you know, connects to the PlayStation. You put on the headset. You've got the PlayStation motion controllers there. It looked pretty cool, but comparing that to the Oculus Rift, I've heard is like comparing an Atari to a PS3. Uh, I, I doubt the uh, difference is quite that dramatic. My understanding is that the PlayStation VR is uh, lower resolution and maybe doesn't have as high quality of display. I've never experienced that. I don't really know anything about it. I haven't even read reviews because I don't have a PlayStation, so there wasn't any reason for me to spend time reading reviews. I can say that of the virtual reality systems that I've tried, I've tried the uh, HTC Vive and I've tried the Oculus Rift, and then I've done, like, the Google Cardboard with my phone in a little box <laughs> strapped to my face. Uh, that, that would be the level I could afford right there. Right, yeah, that's clearly not very good. Although, if it's all you've got, you know, you can look at some interesting stuff that way. But the uh, Oculus had a slightly better resolution than the Vive. I mean, it didn't require as much space to set up. It was a little bit cheaper, so the Oculus seemed to me to be the way to go. And even though I'm in a 300 square foot apartment and my play area is only about as wide as my outstretched elbows, I can't even extend my arms all the way out without hitting a wall or dresser or something. I still find that quote unquote room scale experience Mm -hmm. to be very compelling. Now, what games have you got for it? So far, I haven't purchased anything directly from the the Oculus store. I already had a subscription. Well, it's not a subscription game, but I I had a license for Elite Dangerous, which is Mm -hmm. a space flight simulator. One that I wanted to play for so long. Oh, it's so cool. And it's in a a one-to-one scale replica of the Milky Way galaxy. You can fly to any, any star that's actually been plotted. Everything that I don't know what the governing body of star classification is, but anything that they know about a star is in that game. 
Oh, uh, that's cool. The recent Earth-sized planets that they found in a system called TRAPPIST-1, mm-hmm. they just went ahead and added that to the game. So you can fly there and you can see. I mean, obviously, they don't look like what they actually look like because who knows what they look like. Mm-hmm. You can fly out and you can actually find the Voyager probes that are in the location that they will actually be in the year... I think it's 3303 See, or something like that. That's just someone That's someone caring. Yeah. Like well, going that extra mile. And talk about geek out. Those guys geek out over astronomy. But you put on the, the Rift and you play Elite and you are in that spaceship. Now, this just shows how little I know about it. Are headphones included in the headgear setup? Yeah. On the Rift, there's some over-ear headphones that are attached to the Rift's head harness thing that are real comfortable. They fit nicely over my ears. And they've got great audio quality. I mean, I'm not an audiophile, so they're probably not like as wonderful as some people's $1,000 headphones. But mm-hmm. for my purposes, they're great. They're better than my computer speakers <laughs> by far. And it's better than 2K resolution. It's like 2196 by 1800 or something like that. So it's, it's a lot of pixels. Mm-hmm. But you got to remember that it's spread across both of your eyes. So each eye only gets half of that horizontal resolution. And they're two inches from your eyeballs. So it sounds like a lot of pixels, but it's still actually pretty low res. You can okay. you can see the screen during. And so in, the, in terms of elite, I don't really necessarily feel like I'm flying the spaceship. I feel like I'm more like Ender operating the spaceship through an Ansible. Gotcha. Now, what's the weight like on this thing? It's a little heavy, but the Oculus... As opposed to the Vive, the Oculus has like a counterweight on the back of your head, so it doesn't really wear you out. So it's got a good balance on it. Mm -hmm. The Vive, when I played with that, a friend of mine runs a VR company developing some commercials, and now he's doing game development. So I went down and I alpha tested one of his games. And after 20 minutes of wearing the Vive, I was really feeling it in my neck muscles because it was just constantly pulling my head forward. Um, The Oculus I can wear for an hour, two hours. I don't recommend wearing it for two hours. You've eyes start to get really weird (laughs) after that that amount of time. That right there is my worry. I haven't had a lot of experience putting on any type of VR headsets. Mm -hmm. Like years and years ago, they had a, at a mall arcade, they had a thing where you put on a big clunky VR headset that was connected to something in really low res. But from what little I have, I remember putting it on. It's like you said, just a couple inches away from your eyes. And with me, I'm so susceptible to migraines. My worry is that I get on, I'd be having a blast and the second I took it off and everything adjusted, boom, I just get hit smack between the eyes with one. And that is a problem. I uh, I also get migraines, not as bad as yours. Um, I'd mostly get the optical symptoms. But I did have one while I was wearing the thing. And the trouble is that the particular symptoms of a migraine are similar to the symptoms of VR sickness. You get nausea, you get the optical strangeness going on. And when it's being compounded, you know, inside the VR screen, you got very high resolution, bright, highly saturated pixels really close to your face. You're in this like enclosed kind of hot space and you're already nauseous from, okay, my field of view is moving around, but my body is not. And that just compounded with the migraine symptoms and it came on so fast and so hard. Usually I have enough time to go ahead and take the migraine medicine and I skip the most of the pain, but it just shot through all of the initial warning symptoms and it came on really fast. See, that's right there is what's making me hesitating as much yeah. as I would like to have one because I know someday soon hopefully there will be a Star Wars experience <laughs> through this thing yeah. and I cannot explain how desperately I want to fly an X-wing. <laughs> but they cost several hundred dollars mm-hmm. and I don't want to 
shell out that much money for what essentially is becoming a migraine making machine. Yeah. I get enough of those on my own in my daily life. I don't want to be getting them in my virtual life as well. Yeah. And some people have a hard time. Your eyes have two mechanisms that help you tell how far away something is. The convergence, how much they tilt toward each other, and then the focus, what they call accommodation. And when you're in VR, your convergence can change freely. You know, you look at something far away, your eyes go more parallel, you look at something close and they cross. But your focus is always on that spot a couple inches away from your face. And divorcing the convergence and the accommodation is what causes a lot of headaches in VR and in actually in stereo movies, too. People who complain about headaches when they watch a 3D movie are having that same problem. Um, It's a little worse in VR because, again, the screen is two inches from your eye instead of many feet. So people who have a hard time watching a 3D movie aren't going to enjoy VR at this time. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some technology coming five to seven years probably in the future called Lightfield. Okay. Which simulates the way light actually comes in toward your face. I mean, instead of giving you like a grid of pixels like a screen does, it gives you a kind of a holographic set of light rays that you actually can focus. Even though it's originating close to your face, you can focus in the distance and it will act like real light that way. Camera company Lytro makes photographic cameras that do this, that you can choose your point of focus after the photo has been taken. You can even slightly change the angle of view after the photo has been taken. It's amazing technology. And right now, of course, you can't decode that without a very heavy computer that you don't really want to strap to your face. Yeah. (laughs) So I think, and I don't have any idea what kind of... (laughs) Projection. Why, why are you always looking down at your feet in your VR? This thing is so it's heavy. Too heavy. <laughs> I can't lift my head. <laughs> After three months of using it, you look like Conan. Your neck is yeah. so thick. You know, but my, my virtual boots look fantastic. <laughs> uh, and I have no idea what a, a light field projection would take. I doubt you could, you'd want to strap that to your face either. No. But as time goes by and that mini gets miniaturized and becomes more feasible, I think VR actually will become something that most people will experience and enjoy. Right now, it's very niche. Not everybody's going to want to strap this machine to their face. It is, you know, kind of sweaty. For those who like space flight simulation, though, there is nothing like playing Elite in the Oculus Rift. I got in my Asp Explorer, and you can look up, and you can look to the side, and you go into the system map, and you see these... Do you remember the like the stellar cartography room and I think it was Star Trek Generation where you had this this huge room and a big old star in the middle and the, yeah, the and card like, standing you, you out. You kind of walked out and they were like on a little platform. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a circular room. The system map in Elite feels just like that in the Rift. It oh, that's so awesome. cool. So yeah, I could probably go so, on and on about that. So you have to be careful because while you're plotting your course, if you sneeze, you're going to fly right into a sun. <laughs> that is a danger. But fortunately, when you're in the rift and you're heading toward the sun, it is so freaking huge and scary that you know, you're like, oh, I got to stop. <laughs> there it is. I flew to the center of the galaxy recently. It had been my intention before I stopped playing Elite a while back to fly to the center of the galaxy and see the giant supermassive black hole Sagittarius A star and you warp in and there it is and you're like this is the most dangerous object in the galaxy and I am a few thousand miles from its event horizon and what's worse take a picture (laughs) you can't see it it's a black hole yeah (laughs) I mean you've got this gravity lensing effect all around you so you can't even really tell which direction you're going or which direction the black hole is all you know is okay I know that the way this game works 
I warp in and I'm directly facing the heaviest object in the system. So I know the black hole is right in front of me, but I can't see it. And turning my ship makes everything go weird. And of course, you're doing that in VR and you're close your eyes. All right. <laughs> let me pause to take the Dramamine. Yeah. Flying around near a black hole in an Oculus Rift is definitely something that's going to make you queasy. Yeah, I love that that's a phrase that you wouldn't have heard five, ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Flying near a black hole. <laughs> in, my, in my virtual reality simulator. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the question you asked me was, what games do I have for it? And that's the one I've been spending the most time in. But uh, I've also got the one that came with the Oculus Touch that, just to clarify, the Oculus Rift is the head-mounted display and one sensor. And then the Oculus Touch is another $100, and you get these squeezers, little triggers and a second sensor, which can sense the triggers and the headset so you can stand up and you can hold virtual guns or whatever. Cool. And a game that came with that is called uh, Robo Recall. You're a uh, recall product recall specialist for a robotics company, and all the robots have gone insane and started attacking their users. And so you've got to you teleport out into the middle of, middle of the city, and you get to shoot robots and grab them and pull their heads off and throw them at each other. Because they didn't have the license for Blade Runner. Right. Yeah, it's very Blade Runner-ish. But that brings up something that, particularly among church-going people that object to video games for the violence, mm -hmm. they say, oh, well, these violent video games make our children violent. And for the most part, I've always said, that's ridiculous. I've been playing Wolfenstein and Quake and Unreal Tournament and Call of Duty, and it hasn't made me any more violent. I'm, in fact, got less of a temper now than I ever did when I w was younger. But I will say that playing Robo Recall in the Rift you feel so present in the environment, and you're shooting these robots. I swear, if I were to encounter a robot on the street, I would have a visceral violent reaction toward it. <laughs> and so I'm kind of actually kind of on the other side of that. I want to say be careful with the VR games because the violent ones, I think, actually do change your, your viewpoint, your outlook, and your inclination. Because it's changed from... You're seeing it on a screen, and your actions are being put in through a controller by your fingers and thumbs. Mm -hmm. Now, it's you're inserted into the game, and your actions are being done by your own hands. Yeah, and you, you've got that squeezer in your hand, but you've got since you've got the visor on your head, you don't see the, the squeezer. You see the gun, and mm -hmm. you point it at something, and you've got a gun, and you're holding it like a gun, and you pull the trigger, and a robot falls down, and then the robots are shooting at you, and... You see bullets coming at you and you try and dodge, which, of course, is ridiculous because the game only knows where your head is. It doesn't know where your body is. And so, like, doing the Matrix thing where you're, like, moving out of the way, it's like, oh, well, that's still going to hit me because I didn't move my head. I just moved my body out of the way. <laughs> so it overrides your sense that this is a game. It overrides that distance that you get from a normal video game experience where you're playing it through a controller, through a keyboard and mouse. And so, yeah, I get to the end of a, a game of Robo Recall, and I feel like the adrenaline and anger toward these. I'm going to go to a, a car assembly line and just trash every <laughs> single piece of automation I can find. Right. Let alone, it's going to take my job. It's going to shoot me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity yet to uh, play any of the other games other than that one that I alpha test. Keep an eye out for Killer Bunnies from Mars. Is that game. a card game? No. Uh, but there is a card game called Killer Bunnies. Yeah, I think I think you're right. They may have some trademark problem, problems with that. They might have to change their title. Anyway, but uh, from Studio 229, I'll just go ahead and give them a shout-out because that game was so much fun. 
uh, just these t- stupid cartoon-looking rabbits and shooting them with miniguns. It was too much fun. <laughs> it sounds very Monty Python-esque. It was very... I had a big, nasty, pointy teeth <laughs> running through my head at several points during that game. But after having spent $600 buying the Rift and the Touch and thinking to myself, oh, well, now I need to spend another four or $500 to upgrade my video card so that I can play the Steam VR stuff. And, oh, uh, there's a couple of things that need Windows 10, so I need to spend another $200 upgrading my operating system. I haven't purchased any other games, even though I really, really want to. Um, and we were talking about this just before the show started. They just released a Star Trek Star Trek oh. Crew Simulator or something oh, like that. Oh, I saw a video for that, and that right there is something that I'm like, okay, my wife might leave me because <laughs> I'm going out to buy an Oculus Rift. Yeah, and you're actually, it's a, it's a multiplayer game in which the players, you know, one takes the uh, the con, some, you've got a tactical officer, you've got the captain, you've got, mm-hmm. I think there's a communications station and uh, engineering, and everybody's got to manage their resources, and the captain's calling out, hey, we need auxiliary power to shields, you know, hard to port, whatever. And the other players have their job to do, taking orders from the captain, relaying information back to the captain. And all of that is, and you're sitting in the captain's chair, and you see the deck around you. It looks like that the version of Star Trek they've used is the 2009 version, the J.J. Abrams one. Yeah, I think so. Oh, which I'm fine with. <laughs> I loved those movies. And it's sleek. It's cool. It's like Star Trek meets Apple Store. Right. Um, but like I said, I'm okay with that. It very much takes advantage of our current view of mm-hmm. the future, as opposed to like the 1970s, 80s, <laughs> 90s view of right. the future. Well, and then Oculus did the worst thing in the world. You've got this home environment where you can interact with your library and with the store. And it's just nice. There's a fireplace and a big rug and stuff. It's pleasant. Shoot, forget the game. I just want to hang out in that. Oh, yeah, it's nice. But what they did was normally you've got this, like, oceanscape out the windows. They replaced the oceanscape with a star field, and you see a Star Trek starship fly over the head, and it's like... That is the most compelling advertising I have ever experienced. Cool. It's like, I have have to have that. that. (laughs) I don't have $60 to spend on it right now, but I must have it. (laughs) So, Uh, yeah, there's maybe another downfall is that advertising could potentially be very compelling. mm Mm-hmm. And I think you told me that it's not just a single player. You can have NPCs manning your stations, or if you've got a buddy who's got the game, you two can do it together. Yeah, or you, I or, think you can do a pickup game where you just get random strangers all crewing your ship. Oh, that sounds cool. Either it, cool or very, very frustrating. <laughs> and I can only imagine that it's Why not, are the shields down? Hey! Why aren't we firing phasers? He's in the bathroom. <laughs> Come on! AFK. Yeah, AFK. I can only imagine that it's not just sitting around a starship managing resources, power distribution, Mm -hmm. and oxygen consumption, but they have to send you on missions. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. That would be kind of the point. You know they've got to send people on the Kobayashi Maru. (laughs) That would actually be interesting. And I I keep wondering, is it possible to pull off the Picard maneuver in the game? (laughs) It might be, but... The person who is having to physically touch the buttons and manage the controls has to be good enough right. to pull it off. That split-second jump to warp and then coming back out. Mm-hmm. And then your tactical officer has to be good enough to be aiming his phasers in the right direction when you come out so that you use that element of surprise. So And go. <laughs> and we've smashed into the ship. What are you shooting that direction for? Exactly. Oh, 
I don't need an Oculus Rift. I don't need an <laughs> Oculus Rift. I don't need an Oculus Rift. No, you just need to visit California and you can play with mine. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Anything else you've been geeking out to? Or has uh, the Oculus Rift been taking up most of your that little has, free time? Yeah, that has. Well, it's taken up more than my free time. I'm supposed to be writing a book, and I haven't written a chapter. I should have written and published another chapter by now, but I've been playing Elite too much, so there hasn't been any writing getting done. <laughs> Fair enough. For myself, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but my geeking out has been, I'm kind of like the song Henry VIII. You know, my second verse is the same as the first. Um, I've been geeking out to the same things recently because, as I've shared, I've got a four-year-old. I've got a pair of 10-month-old twins. And so it's taking me a long time to get through my geeky hobbies. <laughs> Normally, I would have done this, moved on, gone to the next thing. But I'm still doing, well, I'll never stop doing the sword fighting. But because of my weird work schedule and the fact that I have not been able to make it to repeat fighter practices like I've wanted to, I did find a group on Facebook that I joined called the 100-Day Pell Challenge. Now, this is for a group in the SCA who want to get better at armored combat and other things. And so it's a challenge where you do 100 shots a day on a Pell with your sword or something similar. Whatever it is, whatever exercise it is, whatever type of combat exercise you're doing, you're doing 100 of them a day for 100 days. My good friend of mine who lives up in Kansas, who I knew back in Colorado, he invited me to the group. He went through it, and I'm going to give this a try. And I'm going to get my gloves, get my longsword and my rapier. And even if it's only 20 or 25 minutes in my backyard, I'm going to do this. And I joined on the first day of June. So that way, for 30-some-odd days, it'd be really easy to remember what day I was on. <laughs> so I go out, and I've talked about looking at Guy Windsor's book, uh, you know, The Medieval Longsword, mm -hmm. and looking at his videos. And I've watched these videos. I've looked at some of the exercises, some of the attacks that he teaches about Fiore. And I've gone to my backyard, and I've tried my best to recreate them. And one of them I'll do 50 times. I'll switch to another one and do that 50 times, and there's my 100. And the nice thing about this group is that there are dozens of other people on there. I'm looking on it right now, and there's one person today. It's like day 72, day 60. One person is on day five on their third round oh. of going through it. And it's not just people. Like, I'm doing it with a longsword and occasionally a rapier. A lot of people on here doing it with the armored combat rattan swords. But you've also got people on here doing it with spears. One person put a picture of them doing 100 shots with their spear. One lady is on here who is, doesn't fight, but she loves to shoot archery. So she's doing 100 days of shooting 100 arrows a day. I ought to pull out my practice saw and join that with those things. Mm -hmm. Joy has even joined me in this. And while she doesn't do a lot of combat, she has a very apt hand at calligraphy. Mm. And she is really beginning more into period calligraphy, but also just researching and practicing different styles of calligraphy throughout the ages. And so she joined me in that every night I do my 100 exercises and she is going to write a different either verse from the Bible or famous quote or something else in a certain style of calligraphy. And every once in a while changing it up and starting a new style. Hmm. So she's got her book she's doing it in. I've got the backyard, which I do my practice. Not last night, though, because the mosquitoes were out in force. <laughs> and I did not feel like getting eaten up. So I found an area in my house where I wasn't going to hit a table, a light fixture, or the wall. 
Or a child. Or a child. Well, they were already in bed. I'm not even going <laughs> to attempt that with children under feet. And I'd be like, 46, 47, 40. Oh! And then the crying begins. <laughs> so I've really been enjoying doing it. And the people on Facebook, really supportive. It's cool, to, one, to have this accountability. Mm -hmm. Because if I miss a day and I want to continue, I have to start over at day one. Ah. So that is the you know inspiration to do it every single day. And at the end of 100 days... I'm just going to be that much better. So right. who knows? I'll wait and see how much it helps me personally. Mm -hmm. But I know for a fact it's not going to hurt. Yeah. So other than that, still playing Mass Effect. Still enjoying Andromeda. This last week, I've really been you know, kind of turning it over in my head, comparing it to the original three Mass Effect games. Mm -hmm. Does it hold up? Yes, to a degree. The main plot isn't quite as compelling as the originals, there isn't that same sense of this is an urgent, serious matter. Mm -hmm. But I've really been enjoying the exploration aspect of it. I'm sad because I've read that from some of the developers that there could have been so much more. Like there was supposed to have been like Elite Dangerous and other games. There was supposed to be hundreds of worlds that you could go to and visit. And then that got changed to scale back to 30, mm -hmm. then a dozen, then seven. Huh. I mean, there's a lot more than seven planets out there. I mean, it is several clusters of uh, solar systems that are in the same galactic cluster, but you can only land on and actually walk around supposedly seven of them. And that was a bit of a disappointment. And I realized that, you know, as the game gets closer to finished, you have to make certain compromises. Right. But from what I've read of the developer's notes and the, the process that making the game, it just read more like that this, while it's okay, it's a series of also missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. But still enjoying it. I joked about this last episode and that the main plot line was still going to be waiting for me. But I will have visited all the planets available that I can put colonies on and gotten the viability of the planet up to 100% on each one of them. Colonies on each one of them. Done all the side missions. Made it a happy paradise for each one. And I've done that. <laughs> I've done exactly that. Prediction was accurate then. In my defense, each of the planets I've gone to was part of the progression of the main storyline. Mm -hmm. And... I just got there and I liked looking around. I got bit by the exploration <laughs> bug and going around and seeing the different points of interest. So at least somebody did their job right. Someone did a good job on that. So well done. And we'll see where it goes from there. So then if the trade-off was we can do 30 planets, but they're not going to be as interesting or as beautiful individually. Mm-hmm. Would you make that trade-off, or would you prefer the seven planets that are just rock solid? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. And I'm sure that's a question that they ask themselves several times during the development mm -hmm. process. Hey, you know, we can do 30 planets, but they're not going to be very good. Quality versus quantity. Mm -hmm. Myself, the or more we can I spend think... another seven years on it. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or make seven high-quality worlds right now. I, just flat out, though, I do like quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. I really do. I had a feeling. But I'm hoping they do this. We'll give you seven really fantastic worlds right now. And then we'll drop a DLC later with two more. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a space station. And that would be neat. Yeah. I would really like that. I don't know if there's going to be... There hasn't been any announcements of DLC for this game yet. And I'm going to cross my fingers because all three of the prior Mass Effect games had, for the most part, good quality DLCs for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that they'll continue with this. Now... I played the first two, but I bought it in a package that had the DLC all included. Okay. So I'm not really certain what parts of the games that I played were DLC and what parts were 
part of the original experience. Okay. But I never played without them. I assume the DLC must be good because I could never tell the difference between what was what, except for a couple of, like, the equipment packs were obviously labeled, oh, hey, this is extra material that I get because I get it from the very beginning of the game and it's got a label on it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of story, I think I identified a couple of things that, oh, okay, well, this is clearly associated with this DLC that I noticed the name of. But by and large, I couldn't tell the difference. So I don't know what if the DLC was good for Mass Effect or not. And you say it was, so I'll take your word for no, it. it was good. I know the games overall were pretty good, except for the uh, typical disease that those games have where the uh, plot structure is the same, whether you're playing Neverwinter Nights or Dragon Age or Mass Effect, uh, Knights of the Old Republic. It's like, it's I been, feel like I've played this game it, before. It's been so long since I'd played Knights of the Old Republic and I hadn't played any of the other ones. Mm-hmm. I really wasn't able to make a comparison. Yeah, I mean, this, the plots are different mm-hmm. and the feel of it all. But you've got, okay, well, I've picked up this crew of companions and, hey, I'll bet this one wants me to go on a quest and that will unlock some extra abilities for them. Oh, look. I get to go on a quest and unlock, unlock extra abilities. And they do the same thing in every game. And they've continued the formula with Andromeda. Yeah. It's like, uh, come up with another idea. <laughs> yeah. But in their defense, people are still buying it. Yeah. If it works and it makes money, then you don't change it. You know? Exactly. That's why we have, what, was it five Avengers movies? I mean, sure, two of them are called Captain America, but they're still Avengers movies. <laughs> True. <laughs> and I think that... Uh, takes us into that question that you asked earlier well not on air but you asked me earlier about whether or not dlc is worth it Mm -hmm. and to clarify worth it in terms of the time spent or worth it in terms of hey do i really want to spend more money on this game that i already bought both both because both are you buy a dlc one because you want to spend more time on new content and you like the game enough that you want to spend more time in it Mm -hmm. playing new content and that can be a few hours or that can be several hours, depending on the on the content. And DLCs can range anywhere from ten bucks to thirty bucks mm-hmm. in cost. And let me give you an example. I'm either way. Well, I like DLCs. I do. They had some fantastic ones for Mass Effect. And thankfully, by the time I got to the Mass Effect games, they were been out for a few years. And so the DLCs, when I bought them, were on sale. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't cost me very much. My first experience with buying a DLC at its full price was with Skyrim. Hearthfire? Hearthfire was one of them. That was um, fantastic. To make an analogy, Skyrim was like a, a great, solid cheeseburger. <laughs> it was good. It was filling. It was tasty. You could have had it by itself, and you'd have been happy. Mm-hmm. And then they had three DLCs for it. The first one was... One called Dawnguard, which was a whole new storyline, which dropped you into the middle of a human versus vampire war. Vampires are trying to kill the sun, and obviously you want to stop that. Right. And it brought on new abilities, armor, all that cool stuff. That was a lot of fun to play. And then after that was Hearthfire. Hearthfire of the three was the cheapest. I think it was only a $10 DLC, but you got to build your own homes. And there was more to it. They had a couple of other little things than that, but you got to build your own homes, fill it with your own stuff, build different rooms. And that I kind of likened to, that's like, you know, really good condiments. That's like your ranch, good ketchup, mustard, all that fun stuff. And Dongard would have been like a side of fries. (laughs) And then they had one called Dragonborn, which was like a really nice, good milkshake. (laughs) Separately... The DLCs were okay on their own. Like, the fries were okay on its own. The milkshakes on their own. You put it with the cheeseburger and the condiments. 
boom, you've got yourself a fantastic meal. Mm-hmm. And Dragonborn was, you're dealing with the very first Dragonborn of all that was ever created. And I actually never finished that one. But you've got a, a fantastic meal. And they were all good. I almost finished Dragonborn. By that time, I'd been playing Skyrim for a year solid. Mm-hmm. And I really needed something different. <laughs> You can only eat that hamburger so long. Eventually, you need a salad. Exactly. <laughs> well, that was when I switched to the Mass Effect games. And I was like, let's have a steak. So that's good DLC. Mm-hmm. Other games have had fantastic DLC as well. Like quite a few of the Call of Duty games had really good DLCs. The Witcher series, that was one that was praised for having quality DLC. But let me see. Back in... When did I start playing this game? Back in 2015... When the shooter Destiny came out, mm-hmm. I bought it because I had a couple of good friends of mine back in Colorado who were going to get it. And we thought it would be fun for the three of us to play together, to form a little group, right? play together. I'm like, hey, get to connect with these guys again. It'll be fun. And at first it was, but it felt like it was lacking. It felt like that there were things that there was a main area, which was called the tower. While you weren't going out on missions and doing things, that's where you hung out. Mm-hmm. And it had little areas that it looks like there should be something there. But there's not yet. <laughs> and that became kind of the feeling of the whole game. There feels like there should be something there, but there's not yet. And the DLC probably shouldn't be visible until it's actually available. Yeah. No, <laughs> it was a, a it hole was, here. It wasn't 2015. It was 2014 when the game came out. Mm-hmm. September 2014. They released the first DLC in December. That was the Dark Below. And then they had the House of Wolves and then the Taken King. And the Taken King, that one dropped exactly one year after it came out. In September of 2015, when the Taken King came out and you had the main game and these three DLCs, mm-hmm. plus a couple of patches that always come through on games these days. Right. One year later, I finally feel like I had a completed game. <laughs> one year and an additional 60 bucks because each one of those DLCs cost 20 more. Yeah. But I had to pay it because I was still enjoying playing with my friends. They get the new DLCs, which have new missions, new storylines, new level cap. And I want to continue to play with them. Right. So I would do it. And it's like the original, to continue with the burger analogy, the original game was the buns. Next <laughs> DLC, that was the meat. Then the cheese. Then the lettuce, tomato. All together, forget there is nothing else. But there is no fries. There is no <laughs> shake. Nothing at all. And it, I got tired of it. I got tired of playing it. Once again, we're playing it for a year. And then... A couple of months after I played the Taken King with friends, I just one night lost all interest. Mm. I was just done playing it. And especially when I read that they were going to do one more DLC for it called Rise of Iron. No, I'm done. I've paid for this game twice over. Yeah. And I'm not going to do any more. They've released trailers and gameplay scenes for Destiny 2. And after the taste it left in my mouth after that first one, I don't think I'm going to get it. Yeah, there was a lot of the similar complaints about Elite because when they released out of the Kickstarter, it really wasn't... It was everything that the old Elites, because it was actually a sequel to three other games that had been made in the early 90s and 80s. Everything that was in those old games was in the new Elite Dangerous. But that wasn't quite enough for it to feel like a modern game. Mm -hmm. And over time, they've released more stuff. You can now land on planets... Uh, you can have extra crew on your spaceship to man the turrets or whatever. You can launch fighters out of your big ships. All of these things are things you thought, you know, those would be really cool if they had been in the game originally. That made it the whole game. But they had kind of made a commitment. We really want to launch this game, unlike a certain other Kickstarter sci-fi game that promises the moon and is not yet released several years later. Uh <laughs> 
I think that's the most bitter I have heard you sound uh, in a while. I want it to be awesome, and I want it to, but mostly I want it to be, and it isn't yet. Star Citizen has been the, and I'm sure every gamer out there who's paid any attention to it at all is thinking the same thing. Just finish the freaking game already. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least Elite eventually released, even if it mm-hmm. wasn't quite feature complete. At least you got to go to the center of the galaxy. Yeah, and three years later, it's turning into quite a good game. They've got galactic-spanning powers. You can change the course of the way politics work and everything. But yeah, at release, it really felt like, hey, I paid for part of a game. Mm -hmm. In their defense, they did say you can buy, I think it's like $40 for a season pass. That makes me mad, the whole season pass thing. It does. Because that says to me... This game will only take you to a point, and we've already got lined up all these extra things that quite a few of them, in my opinion, should have been included in the original game. They were not, mm-hmm. and now we're going to charge you 60 80 $100 just to have an easier access to them when they come out. Yeah, and think about it as if... Uh, Skyrim DLC, you can buy them separately, but if they said, you know what... You can pay for it up front, and you'll get all of the DLC we released this year for the same price, regardless of how much we charge for it piecemeal. It'll be more. But you can say, hey, I'll pay for it up front, and I'll get all of them as they come out. That's a little bit the same way a lot of software companies are working now with subscriptions, where mm-hmm. instead of buying Adobe Photoshop CS9 or whatever they would be on by now, you say, okay, well, I subscribe to Photoshop for $45 a month, and... Every time they release an update, I get it. I don't have to say, okay, well, I'm going to upgrade to the latest version of Photoshop. You get the upgrade automatically because you're subscribed to it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say, I hate that. And frankly, I'm one of them. I would like to just buy software and have software. Yes. But I go back and forth. In some cases, I like it. Like, I didn't really mind paying a monthly subscription to EVE Online. I would not have liked paying a monthly subscription to EVE Online after I had already paid $60 to purchase the game, like was done with... Elder Scrolls Online, like, wait a minute, you want me to buy the game and then pay a subscription fee to play it? I think they've eventually walked back that and they've done a couple of different schemes on that game. I did get into that game, Elder Scrolls Online, because once again, other friends were playing it, invited me to join in. I got it when the subscription service, they got smart finally and did away with that. Yeah. And I picked it up at a used game store for like 15 bucks. That's not a good price to pay for it. Yeah, I jumped in on it, and uh, I went into it expecting Skyrim, except multiplayer. (laughs) It it, it was not. Yeah. It was not. I was like, uh, you got your World of Warcraft in my Elder Scrolls. Yeah, and that's why I really never really gave it the time of day, because I read the description. I'm like, that sounds awful. (laughs) I gave it the good old college try. I really did. Played with some friends. But (laughs) what I discovered was that the friends I was playing at were so much higher level than I was. Mm -hmm. I'd be sitting there trying to kill enemies and to get level, and they just boom, boom, boom. All the bad guys are dead. Yeah. I'm like, and I'm I'm still working on my one here. (laughs) So nothing against it. Give me 10 more minutes. I'll kill this goblin. Yeah, exactly. Well, some DLC that was really good and definitely worth it. Fallout 3. Now, Fallout 3 as the base game was okay. It was Mm kind of mediocre. But the pit... Or I, I think into the pit or just the pit. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. That was one of the most compelling stories. I mean, you had a choice to make, and the choice mattered. And 
there were going to be good consequences and bad consequences, regardless of which choice you made. And the level of pathos involved in making the choice, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because, you know, spoilers, although... Fallout 3 is an old game by now. You should have played it. Yes, I have. I have. <laughs> well, not I know done. you have. I'm, yeah. The audience should have played it by now. But still, Fair I'm not going to give you the spoilers. But it's by far one of the best add-ons that I've ever played. Fallout New Vegas, on the other hand, one of the best base games I've ever played, but it had crappy DLC. A lot of people <laughs> liked the super sci-fi thing. Mm-hmm. I found it tedious. See, and that's what's keeping me from ever doing a season pass. Because mm-hmm. I'm paying for like every DLC that they're going to come out with. Even though it is but at you a discounted don't know which rate, ones are going to be good. Yeah. Exactly, it doesn't matter if it's at a discounted rate. I don't want to be paying for what is ultimately going to be junk. Yeah, and if you could be sure that they were all going to be Dawn Guard and Dragonborn and Hearthfire, then great. But if you're going to get, I can't even remember the name of the the New Vegas add-ons now. If they were going to be those, you're like, uh, I dropped cash on this board and I want to go back to that game I'll play it. Mm-hmm. Now, I am close to finishing. I don't know why I stopped playing Fallout 4. Mm-hmm. But since I stopped it, I'm, I'm close to getting to the end and one of these days I will go back, I will finish it. Well, I went straight from Fallout 3 into Fallout 4. Mm-hmm. And so I think I just kind of got overdone. Yeah. And they've since released quite a few DLCs for Fallout 4, but I'll be honest, none of them have really caught my eye. Yeah, the one point something, lookout point, I don't remember what it's called, is supposed to be very, very good. The story that it was telling is like, you know what, I was not really interested in the Children of Adam yeah. as a group. So I was like, ah, do I want to play that? I don't know. But people say it is a very, very good add-on. That was kind of the same I'll way. And like, Eventually give it a try. I might one day in the future, if the Xbox store <laughs> ever has one of the sales, these DLCs, 50% off. Yeah. And if I can grab a bunch of them as a bundle for a cheap price, I might do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I kind of <coughs> bored with Fallout 4. I was playing it in the survival mode, which is hugely fun if you've got mm-hmm. a couple of mods that let you actually eat the food that you're growing. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, we've planted all these tatoes. Sorry, if you eat them, you'll die. But your settlers seem to thrive on them. <laughs> so there was a mod that added some recipes so that you could make food from the stuff that your settlers are growing, which made it playable. But the survival mode, you have to eat or you'll die. You have to drink water or you'll die. You have to sleep every so often. And you can't save unless you can sleep. Wait, wait a minute. Get your real life out of my video game. Yeah, I know. But it makes it so, like, I'm level 20 playing in survival mode, and I am afraid to leave Sanctuary still. You know, that would be how it was, though. I'm in the first town. I'm like, there's a very good chance if I leave town, I'm going to die. I'm level 20. I mean, this mm-hmm. mid-power level, you know, I should be well into the mid-game. But I'm like, if I encounter a super mutant, it's going to mop the floor with me. Yeah. <laughs> or what if I don't find water? What if the things that or I rather, find, what if I only find irradiated cola? Yeah. If I encounter one super mutant, I'm fine. If I encounter two super mutants, I'm probably in trouble. There's no possible way I can deal with three. And a death claw, forget about it. <laughs> I saw a nice cartoon where people were talking about with Fallout, like, you know, here's how you are at level one. Here's how you are at level 60. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, shooting your BB gun against a bug and it's still coming at you, running away versus <laughs> vaporizing it with one shot. But the one picture was the same was as a level one. You know, you're in the, the blue suit with like one piece of leather armor running away from death claw. Level 60, you're in your power armor, all your awesome weapons running away from a death claw. And survival mode is definitely like that. In the regular mode, a death claw is not really a problem by the time you're level 60. A glowing death claw can be troublesome. Mike took a photo, uh, some train tracks in Boston, and I'm like, 
I think I've seen that exact place in Fallout 4. And so I decided to try and find it and take a screenshot to post next to his photograph. I couldn't find that actual spot because they'd moved things around a little bit. But in the place where I thought that photograph had been taken, there was this glowing chameleon death claw. And I'm like, I'm looking for the perfect place to take my screenshot. And then I'm dead. It's like there are pieces <laughs> of me everywhere. It looks at you and just boom, you explode. <laughs> Tell Mike, you know, you should stay away from that intersection. There's a chameleon death claw there. It will take you apart. <laughs> so, and ultimately, I think my answer to the question of DLCs is that you got to treat it on a case by case matter. And you know, read the reviews, same as you do for the base game. Exactly. And take the base game into account. Yeah. Is this a game that you feel like was good enough on its own? Or because if it's a game that needs the DLCs to really carry it forward, is that something you really want to invest in? Yeah. Or should you just cut your loss, move on to something else? I'll have to wait and answer that question for Andromeda <laughs> at a later date. Right. We'll see. I mean, the game has only... When did this game come out? It wasn't that long ago. Now, was Portal a DLC for Half-Life 2? I know it came with the orange box. Yeah, there was three games in there. There was Half-Life 2 and a couple of other Half-Life things. There was Team Fortress 2 mm -hmm. and the first Portal. Yeah, but I don't remember if you had Half-Life 2 by itself. Was Portal an add-on that you could purchase? I know eventually they released it as a separate game, and that's how I got it. But I couldn't remember if it was DLC for Half-Life 2 or if it was only available during the, from the I, orange box. I, that I do not know. I picked up the orange box game from a used game store a long time ago. I found it in my Steam library randomly. I, was, I have no idea who gave it to me. I was like, mm. oh, you have a gift that you haven't opened yet. I'm like, really? Oh, look, the Half-Life orange box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Mass Effect Andromeda was released on March 21st this year. Mm -hmm. We're coming up on three months ago. Right. I'm hoping that we're going to hear something about a DLC soon. Maybe by that time I'll have almost finished <laughs> the main quest. We'll have almost started the main quest. <laughs> no, no, I've started it. I've just been kind of letting it simmer right. for a while. But uh, something that we started discussing earlier was you were telling me about an upcoming RPG session Oh, that yeah. you were going to be taking part of. And I got really jealous. Yeah. For actually, the guy that runs uh, Studio 229, good friend of mine, he participated in the Kickstarter for Tales from the Loop. Yeah. Which I'm sure most people haven't heard about, although you may have seen some uh, art from it. No, I saw it on the Internet. I read some articles about it. It's like, take those 80s movies where the kids in small town USA discover, hey, there's some weird lights over in old man Johnson's field. Mm -hmm. And then you have the montage scene of them gearing up and they're going to go explore it. And then they find that it's an alien government conspiracy that's been built underneath their town their entire time. Right. It's got, you know, Shades of Stranger Things and E.T., uh, The Goonies, The Explorers. Did you ever see The Explorers? I loved The Explorers. Uh, yeah, Are you kidding me? <laughs> that was fantastic. And some people are listening going, what? I've never heard of that movie. Go to IMDb and YouTube and just check it out. I have a feeling that's one that if I watched it again now, I would say this is terrible. <laughs> Let's just remember it in the rose-colored yeah. glasses of memory. I remember memory. it being awesome, and so that's where it's going to stay. I, I can I'm remember. watch it. Okay, here's a dated experience. I can remember my parents going to Blockbuster Video, <laughs> them getting a movie for themselves and saying, you can get one for you, and several times over like a two-year period, me getting the Explorers. Yeah, I have pretty much that same memory. Yeah, so the, all of the PCs are children or teenagers that are living with something strange in their environment. 
The art is just fantastic. The writer is a professional concept artist, and there's this perfect juxtaposition between small-town, semi-rural environments and weird alien machinery off in the distance. You know, look that up. Just do a Google image search for Tales from the Loop. Well, I'm on their website, actually. It's Modifius Entertainment. It's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S. But there's like an umlaut above one of the letters. <laughs> yeah. And Does what, it say what the, the author's name is? Actually, yes, it did. Hold on. Uh, sci-fi artist Simon Stalinhag. That sounds right. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's Swedish. So <laughs> if I butchered it, I'm okay with that. We're very sorry. Yes. I'm sure Simon is listening to us and cursing us out for mispronouncing his name. I'm not even, even going to try it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, looking at the artwork on it, there's an example of a map. It's beautiful. Right. So I am super stoked. I'm so excited about playing that game. For one thing, because I never get to actually play. I'm always... I'm forced to be the, the game master most of the time just because I'm usually the most experienced role player in my group well, and as, I've done as, it before. And as someone who has been in your games, brave enough. you are pretty good at it. <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome. But I really do enjoy the chance to play occasionally, and so I'm really excited that Joel is going to let me uh, be an adventurer for a change. And the fact that the character archetypes are not the typical, you know, I'm not going to be a fighter with massive fuse or, you know, a machine gunner or whatever. I'm going to have to be a kid mm-hmm. uh, with no particular skills, probably. Besides so, being able to beat Super Mario Brothers in one night. Right. And I, I really enjoy games that are a little bit more offbeat like that, that are not quite the typical, we're going to kill monsters and take their stuff, which I enjoy killing monsters and taking their stuff. Don't get me wrong. I yeah. like that. But the games that I really want to play, the ones that I look forward to, and I can never really persuade anybody else to play with me, <laughs> are uh, not quite the, in that same vein. On my shelf, I've got Primetime Adventures, which I actually did get to play recently. I've not heard of that one. Uh, Primetime Adventures is... The premise is you, the players, and the Game Master is called the producer, are making a television show. And so it's kind of like a game within a game kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The, the format of the game is we're making a TV show. And the first session, you're hashing out what is this TV show going to be about. You don't come to the table like, oh, we're going to play a cyberpunk game, and these are the elements, and roll up your characters. You're like, okay, what kind of game would you like to play? And everybody throws out some ideas, or if nobody has any ideas, you draw some cards and you look at a little chart to say, okay, well, we drew the suburbs and FBI and aliens. So we're going to be FBI agents fighting aliens in the suburbs or something like that. And then once you've got your, your idea, you, you talk it out and you figure out what the game is going to be about or what the show is going to be about in your game. And then everybody makes their character, and each character has particular, like a hang-up of some kind. Uh, like, oh, hey, I lost my wife, and so as a result, I've got a death wish. And whenever something reminds me of my wife or I encounter a situation that is similar to what took her from me, I'm going to, you know, be taking stupid risks. And then over the course of the season, the campaign, you're trying to work through that issue. And, you know, whenever it comes up, you've got an opportunity, hey, do I resist my impulse to throw myself in front of the gunfire or you know do i give into it and do something foolish and and try to get myself killed again and then this all culminates and each character has a particular session an episode where they're the spotlight the episode is about them you see this in television shows you know 
like the episode in Buffy the Vampire Slayer where Xander is running around with the zombie guys. Everybody else is off fighting some horrible eldritch demon in the library. Yes, I remember this that episode, episode is about Xander. Everything that happens supports his feelings of inadequacy within the group. He buys this fancy car and he thinks, hey, I'm the car guy. And every time he encounters one of the other characters, they're emphasizing, hey, you need to stay out of this fight. You don't have any magic powers. You're weak. We need to protect Xander. So the episode is about Xander and his feelings of inadequacy. You have, so you have the same thing in Primetime Adventures, where the episode is about this guy, and we've got to work through his issue. And maybe he overcomes it. Maybe he doesn't. It's up to the player whether or not they feel like, hey, you know what? I think that I've come to terms with the death of my wife, and that's not going to be a problem for me anymore. Instead, we're going to have to deal with my alcoholism. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so by its nature, every player gets a chance to have a whole session that's about them, that they get to be the person who's in the spotlight, the person who's the most important person at the table. And another mechanism is as you go through an episode, everybody, you go around the table in order and everybody calls for a scene. I think this scene should be about John and Kathy and their relationship or, hey, this scene is about Bobby sneaking into the robotics lab to steal something. When you call for a scene, it doesn't have to necessarily be about your character. You can call for somebody else's, but it gives everybody the opportunity to shape the way the game is going to go in the way that they kind of want to see it. On the other hand, it makes it a little difficult for the producer because he doesn't have as much say in controlling where the game is going to go. The players can take it anywhere. I mean, seriously, anybody who's uh, been a game master knows that that's going to happen anyway. Yes. At least in primetime adventures, you're expecting it. <laughs> but I've only had the opportunity to play one season and we played a cyberpunk game called Circuit Breakers. You can search for that on Obsidian Portal. I documented the whole thing. And it was so interesting and I would love to play it again, but it's one of those things, am I ever going to get the opportunity? I was trying to talk my group, hey, can somebody else take the producer and do season two of Circuit Breakers? I would love to play in this game. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but that's a bummer. It's one that I was like, that is what I want to do. I've been trying to come up with all of the different games that are out there. And this list just grows exponentially <laughs> every single year of all these RPGs that I've seen that either I have, like you with this game, you, you've done one season of it and you really want more. And I've dipped my toe in some, but I've never got to do more. And some of them I've seen either on the shelf or in a review or I've heard from other friends. And I really want to try this game, but I just have not been able to because I don't have time yet. Yeah. Or I don't have people to play with. So, like, what others are there? I know you've got to have more. There was a terrific troop-style game called Legends of Illyria, which okay. I've had on my shelf for a decade, maybe longer. It was written by the fellow who at one time served as the vice president of the Christian Gamers Guild, Seth, and his last name is escaping me at the moment. But it's a fascinating environment. I don't really know. I haven't actually read through the whole thing, but what I have read is is very moody and dark, and I would really like to play it. I've got Alternity on my shelf. I've got Babylon 5. There's you know, another one written by a... I'd play a Babylon 5 RPG in a heartbeat. <laughs> but as much as you and I went through all the episodes together back yeah. in the day and discussed them, I mean, yeah. But the trouble is, you need more than one person to be interested in it. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> Playing a Babylon 5 game with one guy, eh, mm -hmm. you can do that with some games. B5, not really. Too much diplomacy. Another one written by a Christian Gamers Guild officer, uh, Mark Young, is called Multiverser. I'd like to get the opportunity to 
play or run that at some point. It's not the kind of game I really like because it's extremely crunchy. I mean, a lot of statistics. I usually like lighter stuff. My ideal role-playing game is Rysis, which is two pages long. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Multiverser, on the other hand, is something like 600 pages. It actually, it's got an appendix with a uh, computer code for writing dice probability charts. I mean, (laughs) it's a serious game. I mean... Do you need a degree in the game in order to play it? I think you might. (laughs) I think Mark is actually running that game right now at an anime expo somewhere on the East Coast. He's in the game hall right now running Multiverser because he's the only person on the planet who knows how. (laughs) Wow. I'd love to play a game of Mage the Ascension. That one I've seen. They've got a board game of that. My experience with that was way back in like 2003. Some of the guys I went to church with bought some of the the company Heroclix, who do all of like the DC and Marvel little uh, figurines with the clickers at the bottom, right. which show their like strength, power, health. They Before they started the DC and Marvel ones, they had a Mage the Ascension set. Uh, and right after that, they came out with a Battletech version of that. And when I saw that there was a Battletech version, I jumped headfirst into those. Battletech makes sense. Mage, I'm not sure, does. Because it's a it's a White Wolf game, you know, similar to Vampire the Masquerade or mm-hmm. Werewolf the Apocalypse. I don't know why they put a colon in all of their titles. I don't know either. <laughs> I, right before I moved away from Colorado, I kind of jumped back into the Heroclix thing uh-huh. because the company made a deal with Paramount and made Star Trek ones. Yeah, my brother has a set of that. I've got a case, kind of like a jewelry case, but little compartments in it, uh-huh. and with about a dozen of the little starships in there. I've only had a chance to play two times, <laughs> but I've got them. I would love to play a mage campaign. Um, I've read through the book a couple of times thinking, this is really cool. That's another one that a common objection to role-playing games is, oh, well, magic is going to lead people into the occult. For the most part, like, okay, yeah, uh, have you read the D&D book? There's no actual occult information in there. Mage kind of steps up to that line where you're like, okay, well, this is talking about the hermetic tradition, which is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Actual occult magic and stuff. It's like, now that's we're cross- a little questionable. It's like, we're crossing a little bit of a line here, maybe. Yeah. Like, I don't personally think that it would be a problem for me, but I can see how it might be. So that would be one to be careful with. I still want to play it, though. Fair enough. <laughs> I've got Beyond the Supernatural on my shelf, which is kind of like Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would love to play that one. It's in a system that is kind of a little clunky and haphazard. The Palladium it's a Palladium books, which Palladium games are fun. I played Rifts for years and loved it. It's not the most cogent system out there but uh, it works well enough it certainly works better than some others like traveler which again fun game but it's broken mm-hmm. <laughs> but beyond the supernatural it's been on my shelf for yeah 10 15 years and i've never played it i think i gave my seventh c books to you yes you did <laughs> and uh, they were fantastic yeah and never got i got a chance to play that yeah and I know that was on your list of, hey, games I would really like to play. It, it is. You know, I, well, I keep it in my bag <laughs> because whenever I actually have a chance to flip through it, I pull it James out. James has now revealed the 7th C, 2nd edition, uh, or is that 3rd edition? No, it is 2nd uh, edition. 2nd edition. Yeah. And rule book. you know what? Hey, take a look. This was just a Kickstarter, right? Correct. That's how I got it, through the Kickstarter. Oh, they put nice. out a fantastic book, in my opinion. 
That thing is beautiful. Full color all the way through. It is. But thankfully, it's not just all pictures. It's not smell. <laughs> it's not all just pretty pictures and fluff. The content in it is also pretty solid. But I've had that book for a while now, and I've just been waiting, trying to find a group to play with. If I lived in this city, I would play. I know you would. <laughs> and I'm kind of in the same boat as you. If I want to get a game going on, I came to the realization I'm going to be the one to have to run it. Mm-hmm. But besides that one, I've got the book, and I'm waiting on players Tales from the Loop. When you told me you were going to do a Tales from the Loop game, I got really jealous. One, that you actually get to play in a game instead of running it, but also that system, which just looks so much fun. And the people who put it out, Modifius, they also put out another game, which I would really love to play. And it's still for pre-order right now, but for for the first time in a long time, it's a Star Trek Adventures role-playing game. Most people think that Star Trek is too episodic to really make a good role-playing game. You know, if you're going to be in the Federation, then it's going to be a boring game. I think that that whole universe is rich yeah. for role-playing experience. And an episodic kind of game actually has some advantages mm-hmm. um, in that if you've got a situation where you've got players that drop out, the attendance is inconsistent, an episodic game is ideal because you can just like say, okay, well, this is a new situation and those characters are not part of this one. Yeah. There are episodes of Star Trek that do not contain Will Riker. Um, he may be like have a line or two because obviously he's in the credits. But if Jonathan Frakes wasn't available for when they, they ride around it because it's a self-contained story, they can do that. A lot of role-playing games are highly interconnected and like, oh, you have to be here every week. And that's a lot of uh, a big commitment for some people, especially in our age bracket to make. You know, we've yeah. got jobs. Uh, many of us have kids, spouses unfortunately do not have child or spouse right now so my schedule is a lot easier (laughs) but most of my friends you know they've got other obligations and they can't necessarily commit to okay i can be there every week for six weeks to play Mm -hmm. in a campaign so an episodic system like star trek another reason i want this for the core rule books 57 dollars. that's about what you'd expect Mm -hmm. And, of course, they've got a lot of other things. Uh, they've and you've got, got to buy the Federation got... source book and the Romulan source book. And the <laughs> they've Kingdom got a starter bundle, book. a collector's edition. Uh, they've got miniatures and everything. But for $500, you get the Star Trek Adventures Borg Cube collector's edition box set, <laughs> which is literally a big box of the Borg Cube with drawers that come out with all of the counters, <laughs> miniatures, maps, GM screen, all of it. So, very cool. I will never get. Yeah. <laughs> That's like that box set of uh, Battlestar Galactica that was the Cylon head. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know what? That would look so cool on my shelf, but there's no way. It's like, I'm not paying $120 for, let's face it, a kind of lame 1980s, 1970s. Yeah, yeah 1970s. It was like 77, 78. Actually, sci fi uh, show. First episode of Battlestar Galactica came out on September 17th, 1978, the day of my birth. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right, of course. Wow, that is an extremely interesting thing that you just know right off the top of your head. (laughs) But that makes sense. So Star Trek Adventures is another one on my list. 7C, obviously, because I've had this material for a while now. And for someone who loves history and who loves sword fighting, it's (laughs) 16th, 17th century swashbuckling sword fighting, but with magic involved. And that just sounds all manner of fun. Exactly. Answer, it could not. Could not. One that I've kind of dipped my toes into a little bit. I did one campaign years ago with a homebrew system of Firefly. And unfortunately, that went nowhere fast. (laughs) It's, uh, I won't go into it, but since that came out, there has been an actual rule book put out. 
there has been some fantastic looking supplements yeah. along with and it. I think the Firefly game is based on the same engine as the Babylon 5 one. Okay. If I remember correctly. But I think it would be a lot of fun. And also Dresden. I forgot to write down Dresden. <laughs> it's a universe ripe with a lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. So obviously the Dresden Files, based on the books by Jim Butcher, it's another one yeah. that's got a lot of storytelling in it. Be a lot of cool characters. Even though we had a very successful campaign of this, the Middle Earth one, mm-hmm. the old Middle Earth role-playing game put out by Tor. Is that the company? Uh, no, Tor is the fantasy books publisher. It's that's right. Iron Crown Enterprises. Iron Crown, that's what it was. Okay. So obviously these books are old. They're dated. They're, you can only find them on eBay, sometimes yeah, Iron Amazon. Iron Crown lost that license uh, around the same time as the movies came out. Okay. Because suddenly Lord of the Rings was a hot property and they couldn't afford to maintain that license. But I liked that system. We had a very successful run on that one, mm-hmm. and I would love to try it again someday. And it has some amazing source books. I yes, mean, it the does. The level of detail in an Iron Crown supplement is beyond anything I've seen elsewhere. And there are some of their supplements like Castles in Ruins, which can be used with any game. And if you want to know how much it's going to cost you to build a castle with and without dwarven stone cutters and a wizard's tower and how much am I going to have to pay the blacksmiths. And if your player comes and says, I want to build a keep, I need a fief. It's like, break out castles and ruins and it'll give you everything that you need. Yeah. And Iron Crown supplements are just terrific that way. Um, and the level of detail, you know, I've got the Angmar source book, which is probably 400 pages with several poster maps in it and details about economies and cultures and characters, and it's just so rich. Well, besides the core rule book, which I was able to get off of Amazon, I was able to pick up the Treasures of Middle-Earth source Great book. Great book. You talk about rich in lore, mm-hmm. and in someone just did their research, picked a lot of things which are straight from Tolkien's works, and you can tell the rest of it was clearly well done and excellently inspired yeah. by Tolkien's work. And they go into the Silmarillion, they go into the History of Middle-Earth series, and they pull stuff out of that. And obviously not the more recent, like, you're not going to find stuff from Baron and Luthien in there, because no. that was just published. But anything published prior to 15 years ago, you're probably going to find references to it. Treasures of Middle-Earth has also got an excellent random treasure generator. Yes, I saw that. Really cool caches, you know. Hey, what's in this treasure? Okay, you roll some dice and you get... And it's not just like 45 gold pieces. It'll tell you, create a magic weapon with these particular qualities to it. And it encourages you to come up with some actual lore, some history of the, of the thing. I mean, obviously, you can just get 10,000 silver pieces in a, in a treasure cache, too. But it, it adds some, some really good generators. There was a, uh, a supplement for the Goblin Tunnels under the Misty Mountains that had a random cave generator... It cool. was pretty fun to play with. And I played that as a solo adventure. Just, okay, well, my Hobbit is going to go right, and I roll to find out what's to the right. And you can play that by yourself. It was really nice. But the only one I could think of right now off the top of my head that I've kind of dipped my toe in but wanted to do more was the Western fantasy steampunky one called Deadlands. Oh, man, that was another one that I had a near miss with Deadlands. Uh, someone was starting... Uh, play by email Deadlands campaign. I made my character. I was already, I had this great lawyer from back east who'd been a mm-hmm. boxer, but he hurt his knee. And so he walked on a cane, but he still had the physicality of the boxer, but he was also super smart because of the lawyer thing. It's like great character. The game never actually started. 
bummer. Yeah, I was like, oh, so you, I want to play so bad. I also had a near miss <laughs> with it. Back in Colorado, I had some people who I was going to run a game for. And like they had been doing a D&D campaign for a long time, but they wanted mm-hmm. to take a break. So I said, I'll run something. And I wrote up a storyline for a steampunk western. But I was looking at a system to use to run it. Mm-hmm. And Deadlands was one of the systems I was looking at using. Well, this looks really great, but they don't have these books. Right. And so what I ended up doing was I, it became a homebrew. Mm-hmm. And I used some of like Sidewinder D20. Right. And I bought a, a steampunk western PDF book on like drive through RPG. And between those two, I created my system and I distributed what material I had to my players. Mm-hmm. I got from those supplements more ideas and mechanics and then just kept it real simple. I mean, most things, if they rolled, I'm like, roll me a D20. Mm-hmm. And that's what I made my judgment call off of. Yeah, there's a, a mechanic of game I mentioned earlier, Multiverser has a mechanic called the general effects roll. Mm-hmm. You just roll percentile dice for, I don't know what's going to happen. If I roll dice and it's high, something good happens. If it's low, something bad happens. You know? mm-hmm. Like That's a pretty good, See, simple thing. I, I've come to realize that my style of GMing is I'm much more into the narrative. Mm-hmm. I'm much more into the storytelling than I am into the mechanics of it. Right. And so I give my players quite a bit of leeway when it comes to things like that. I remember you emailed me for some input on that game. And it sounded really interesting, and I was kind of disappointed that it didn't go forward. Well, one of the concepts I had, and I, I was especially proud of this creation, was like in a lot of fantasy games, you'll, you'll have, well, in Lord of the Rings, there was the, the sword Narsil, mm-hmm. and named swords Orchrist of Glamdring, and Orcrist, swords of power and you know, that have their own names in history. Well, what about this Western game where guns had the same thing? Mm-hmm. And I created this list of guns and these names using um, uh, Old West terminology and euphemisms, slang, uh-huh. and kind of created little storylines around each one of these guns. And I had this idea about one called Rabbit, which is a very simple-looking rifle, but if you took it hunting for small game, you would catch game every single time. You know, a Derringer called Silver Spoon, that while it's a small Derringer, it hits like a cannonball. <laughs> And they just kept on rolling. And see, we ran that campaign back in Colorado for about two or three months. I didn't realize you'd actually start playing We did. We got to a point where the players were kind of getting towards the end of what I had thought of in my head as Act One. Uh Uh-huh. And then between conflicting schedules and some other factors as well, and ultimately us moving away, (laughs) I never got to finish it. Mm. It bummed me out so incredibly much. Because I had written this really cool reveal and this twist and an ending to it. And I want to go back to that. (laughs) I really, whether it's with Deadlands or this homebrew Western steampunk adventure, I want to revisit that. For not so much to see what happens with the players, I just want this sense of closure. Yeah. Oh, I I hear you there. The number of games, like that Unknown Armies game that I ran for you uh, and several others years ago. I still have the packet <laughs> that contains all of the research I did on Point Pleasant, West Virginia, because I really wanted to run something about the Mothman. I have a similar folder filled with research about a town in Colorado yeah. that was the basis for where this adventure was. And I finally actually did get to use all that stuff because I played out that Mothman scenario with my current group. 
it unfortunately didn't really go as far as I wanted it to. Mostly it's my fault because I was not enthusiastic about the the schedule or the location and my creativity was waning. But I finally did get my Mothman scenario and I used the information in that packet. But I had like maps and I had all of the story of the Mothman. I'd watched the Mothman prophecies and I'd read parts of the book. Uh, <laughs> and then we never met again. I was like, oh, this is... I need the closure. <laughs> and there was so much stuff that was going on. And you had just like nibbled at the edges of several mysteries. <laughs> yeah, I wish we hadn't finished that one. But once again, schedules yeah. moving away. Just life. I, hate I don't it when even life remember exactly why we stopped a game. playing. I don't either. But then again, that was a long time ago. Yeah. The Star Wars campaign. That was actually one of my most successful that one, I remember I went back to college yeah. after I had done quite a bit of that one. But that one seemed like less like it ended and more like it fizzled. It did fizzle, but at least we got to, we got far enough along that I thought we'd played it. Okay. And I would actually had to start, oh, now I have to think about the second thing that's going to happen in this campaign. Which most of the time I never quite get past the first thing that's going to happen in this campaign. <laughs> but that was a lot of fun. I wouldn't mind doing another Star Wars campaign. As much mm -hmm. as I enjoyed the West End Games versions that we all had, uh -huh. I'm curious about the brand new one that's out now with all of the supplements that I've seen. Yeah. I don't want to run it. This is one I adamantly... <laughs> I know that's yeah. kind of considering out of all the systems that are out there, the one that I probably could run without having to use any source books, <laughs> just using the Star Wars knowledge in my head, is a Star Wars campaign. Not anymore. They invalidated all that canon. <sighs> don't remind me. <laughs> It's nothing like having years of knowledge yeah, and, see, and information now you're gonna just run into wiped off the board. The situation I always had with Dungeons and Dragons, where there's conflicting pieces of canon and conflicting ideas of what Dungeons and Dragons is, and now conflicting ideas about what Star Wars is, and people come to the table and you don't know what they assume to be true, and you're going to make your assumptions, and they're not going to mesh with their assumptions, and suddenly you're going to wind up in a place that no. No, that's not what's going on here. <laughs> Makes you confused, dizzy, and just ultimately weary. Yeah. That's honestly why I've never really run D&D &D with D&D &D players. I think the only D&D &D campaign I've ever run was at your house. Mm -hmm. Because I knew that you guys didn't know anything about <laughs> not a Greyhawk bit. or whatever. Not a single bit. Never done any of it. Yeah. And we were running it in a brand new edition, so I didn't have to worry about somebody coming up with some kind of obscure... Like, Wait a minute, that's not true. Let me pull out this source book, right. you know, Rule 38A on page 492. Mm -hmm. I know DMs who are like, you're only allowed to reference books that I have in my collection. Don't mm -hmm. come in with some player's handbook 45 that mm -hmm. I haven't seen yet because there's going to be some synergy in there that you like that's going to make you super powered. And I just never wanted to deal with that i was actually kind of a little bit reluctant to run star wars for you <laughs> just because i i knew i would be up against your encyclopedic knowledge of the but did i here's the thing i thought about that and in that particular campaign i achilles healed myself because i played someone who had been a slave most of his life right and knew jack about the galaxy mm -hmm. And then after one campaign of that, I realized how tiring that was. <laughs> so I played the complete opposite, a well-known world-traveling adventurer mm -hmm. who knew everything about the galaxy. <laughs> I was like, all right, this feels more like a fit. Yeah. And that's what, actually why I set, I set that game in the space between A New Hope and uh, Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. Because 
I knew there hadn't been much written in that space. And there still hasn't. Yeah, I mean, splinter of a mind's eye, and that's it. And that's not even canon anymore. Right. <laughs> it wasn't even canon by the time that, Return of the Jedi came out. That's a good point. It's <laughs> a very good point. Uh, and so I knew, like, the only thing that I had to deal with was some comic books. And, and I could manage that because it was one continuous line of comic books, and I could fit my stories into the, the nooks and crannies. And I think, actually, we were starting with why there weren't Star Destroyers at the Battle of Yavin, right? Yes. <laughs> because we sabotaged the fleet. Which I thought was a fantastic <laughs> idea. There was an interdictor cruiser with the Star Destroyer fleet, and they were going to rendezvous with the Death Star at Yavin and attack the rebels. And so our intrepid adventurers sneaked aboard the interdictor, hacked its computer, and programmed it to turn on the gravity generators in hyperspace. And I don't have any idea what that's going to do. I remember that exact same <laughs> session. You kind of blinked a few times. and like, I, okay. Yeah. It was one of the things that I'd like written down, but thought they'll never think of that. So I didn't. But it's me. <laughs> I should have known better. Yep. See, moments like this right here is why I wish life could have turned out differently. And I could have been a writer or a contributor <laughs> to some of the Star Wars cartoons that are out there. Clone Wars or Rebels. Okay, that being said, uh, nothing against them. I love them both. Mm -hmm. They've both been fantastic for the most part. But <laughs> now there's a gateway cartoon drug for my children. It's a, uh, a Star Wars Lego cartoon. I think it's called the Freemaker Chronicles. <laughs> and I've watched a couple of episodes on YouTube with my daughter. And they're actually really funny. They're very, very funny. And uh, I kind of look at that as a good way of slowly introducing my children into the Star Wars world. Mm. <clears throat> to use a quote, well done, you've just taken your first steps into a larger <laughs> world. At Clone Wars, I haven't watched Rebels because I don't have access to it on any of the streaming services that I'm using right now. But Clone Wars, by and large, like overall, I really love. But it's got this weird cycle where every fourth episode is fantastic mm -hmm. and opposite that like two episodes opposite it every fourth episode is just really lousy and then the ones in between are that's okay and i think what they have is an all-star animation team and an all-star writing team and when both of those are on the same episode it's awesome and then their b team when they both hit an episode it's one of the really bad ones like that whole thing with the uh they were recruiting the mon calamari and it was all taking place underwater. Oh, yeah. The dialogue on this is horrible. But one of the episodes had really great animation, and the other one had really rotten animation. And it's like, so one of those episodes was among the worst. And another one was okay, but beautiful. And I really think that that's what was happening, is that they, they had these two teams. And when they both were the A-team on it, it was a really great episode. And it's, it seemed to have a cadence almost. Okay, well, it's been four episodes, so this one is going to be really good. <laughs> well, what it's scheduled around is when members of the A-team have vacations. Right. And they high-five, and they bring in the next crew, and they say, okay, it's going to be underwater, and part of it's going to have Jar Jar. <laughs> Hear me out. It's going to be great. I just thought that was an interesting phenomenon on that particular show. How much stock footage can we reuse? Now, that's at least something that they didn't really do in that show. Which I'm thankful for. I'm thankful yeah. that they realized, all right, this is, this is the brand shots. new Star Wars cartoon, not a 1980s episode of Voltron. <laughs> or Airwolf. Or Airwolf. Like, oh, oh we watch the same helicopter explode every week. <laughs> 
It's like, oh, we're only going to shoot this once. We're going to use this footage in every episode. Mm-hmm. That said, I, I like Airwolf. There's, you can't really complain about a show that has a character named Stringfellow Hawk. <laughs> what kind of a name is that? When I was a child, I wanted to grow up and be named Hawk. And the worst part is the actor's name wasn't much better. Jan Michael Vincent. Wow, that's an <laughs> 80s actor's name if I ever heard one. <laughs> it's like Stargate SG-1, mm-hmm. where they had a character that briefly replaced Michael Shanks, Daniel Jackson. I about got those uh, names crossed and called him Michael Jackson. <laughs> but the character is that he's from another planet, but his character is Jonas Quinn. It's like, that's kind of an ordinary sounding name for an alien. Yeah. Well, the actor's name is Corin Nemec. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Something got switched. Right. Are, are you sure that's the actor's name? Did they get the credit swapped? And no one had the heart to go back and fix it? <laughs> or they just got lazy? But they would call him Jonas Quinn throughout the whole show, so I assume that that must have been correct. Wow. Quinn Nimick. That's a sci-fi name. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> you need a pretty high-quality name generator on a website to come up with that. <laughs> so I think that about wraps it up this time. Uh, did you have any last final words? Nope. I don't have a zombie plan of the week to fill in for Mike. Give me two seconds and I will. (laughs) I mean, other than planting some sunflowers. (laughs) Here is one question, just to prime the pumps for next time, maybe. Why is it that when you watch a post-apocalyptic show or read a book, nobody ever gives any thought to sanitation? Where do they poop? Have you ever seen the movie Zombieland? No, I haven't. With Woody Harrelson? Okay. The character in that show, he has rules for zombie survival. One of them is calisthenics. Always stay in shape. Because you don't need to outrun the zombies most of the time. You just need to outrun the other guys. Exactly. And always check doors. Never use public bathrooms. And double tap is another one. Well, long story short, they meet Bill Murray. They accidentally shoot Bill Murray. And after they deal with the body of Bill Murray, he looks at his compatriots, pulls out a bottle, and goes, Purell? <laughs> they're like, yes, please. I always figure if there actually is an apocalypse, the first thing I'm hitting is any place that sells toilet paper, I'm stocking up because that's going to be gold. That's a tradable commodity right there. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be king of the hill if you have a supply of toilet paper. You know, I'm kind of coming to brain dead. The only thing I can think of was. That's an unfortunate quality when we're talking zombies. It is. <laughs> is do what I thought in Colorado and head north and head into the mountains. Well, then you got White Walkers. <laughs> but get into high places, get into cold places, and then just wait for the freeze to come on, and then go around, find the frozen zombies. And hit them with a hammer. With, and hit them with a hammer. <laughs> and zombie sickles everywhere. Anywhere northwest, north and northeast of Kansas ought to be just fine. So basically, I'm saying when the zombie apocalypse happens, head to Canada. <laughs> Interesting. That's about all I got. Okay, well... <laughs> Well, that will wrap it up, I think, for this episode of Geek at Arms. Brian, it's been fantastic having you in studio with me, my friend. I cannot express how much I wish this could happen more often. Me too. I'm not going to fly out here every month. Yes, you need to. (laughs) You need to fly out here every month, but I'm not going to subsidize that. (laughs) Mike, we love you, brother. We're praying for you, and see you back here next time. So from all of us here at Geek at Arms, be safe, be blessed, be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. 
For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 